Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 73. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus. In that episode, covering the concept of biblical judges and Mount Sinai, which gets me to Exodus 20, one of the chapters that has had a great, if not the greatest, influence over society, then and now. It's the first place in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are found. I'm not going to recount them, and you can likely recite, or at least paraphrase, most, if not all. No gods before or besides me, no idols, no murder, honor your parents, six days of labor, one of rest, and all of the rest. But in the list, there are no people, places, and things pertinent to the history, so I'll move on. But quickly, before I do, I'll point you back to a table I published over a year ago about the numbering of the commandments. Not every denomination numbers the commandments the same. In fact, it's even debatable how many there are. But our numbering system is base 10, and the number itself has a certain ring to it, so 10 stuck. By way of example, Luther considered not coveting your neighbor's house as number nine, but Calvin lumped it in with your neighbor's wife and servants as number ten. As for the concept of servitude, I'll get to that in a bit. So, I'll republish that table on the podcast Facebook page. If you don't know where to find that, just search for the Christian History Podcast, just like it sounds and a bit about these rules, laws, and commandments. My approach is similar to when you see an unusual warning label or company policy. It's likely there because somebody did something. And the other thing is that they were establishing a new society, one with, by some counts, over a million people. Societal order needed to be established, and this was done via rules. This isn't just for the commandments, but for also all of the many, many laws that followed. Someone did something they shouldn't have, and the next thing you know, there's a new rule. Keep that in mind as we move through these. One last thing. These rules should be viewed as the lowest common denominator, a low bar, the basic tenets to keep everything together. I was tempted to do something on the commandment against idols, as most other religions from the time had their adherents worshipping a tangible idol that either represented or was thought to be the actual deity. Baal, all of the Egyptian idols, and so many others. But God, via the Ten Commandments, told the Hebrews not to partake in that nonsense. Instead, the thought is, He wanted his relationship with his chosen to be less about the tangible and more about the relationship. But that's a bit theological, and that's it for the idols. The chapter wraps up with what is best described as the rules concerning the altar, and this seems to be a deeper dive into the previous prohibition of idols. Overall, God makes it clear that he doesn't want any gold or silver idols around his altar, Quoting, You have seen for yourselves that I spoke with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver alongside me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. You need make for me only an altar of earth 
and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your offerings of well-being, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. But if you make for me an altar of stone, do not build it with hewn stones, for if you chisel upon it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. End quote. All exceedingly specific. No iron tools, no steps, only of unhewn stone. And that's it for chapter 20. Which gets me to chapter 21, of course. And with this are all sorts of other rules and regulations, mostly concerning property and interpersonal relationships, and the intersection of the two. And that intersection is at the corner of servitude and slavery, which gets us to a very controversial subject in the Old Testament. My first inclination was to tiptoe around the topic, perhaps avoid it altogether, but that would be a disservice to my listeners. Instead, I'm choosing to approach from a strictly historical perspective. Remembering way, way back to the introductory episode, so three years ago, when I promised to cover the history of the religion, warts and all. This is certainly a warty part of that history, and I aim to dive as deep as necessary into what servitude and slavery were to the ancient Hebrews, as best as we currently understand it. Obviously, hopefully, you know I consider it a moral wrong. Actually, that's not nearly strong enough. It's an absolute wrong, and I'm glad society has gotten to this point. But it wasn't there then. Of course, this isn't the only place where the ancient societal standards are quite different. Later, in Exodus 21, it reads that, Whoever curses father or mother shall be put to death. And we all can probably think of at least one moment from our teenage years where that punishment may have been called for. But the next verse reads, When individuals quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or fist, so that the injured party, though not dead, is confined to bed, but recovers and walks around outside with the help of a staff, then the assailant shall be free of liability, except to pay for the loss of time and to arrange for a full recovery. So, hitting someone in the head with a stone, as long as they don't die, is not criminal merely civil. There again, our society is drastically different. And, just in case if you're wondering, if you strike your mother or father, regardless of the weapons or injuries, you're to be put to death. My point is, keep all of this in mind while I discuss the role, treatment, and most everything else we know about the Hebrews' keeping of slaves. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Their ancient culture was drastically different from ours. The laws regarding slavery found in this chapter are remarkably similar to those found in the slightly older code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was the sixth king of the first Babylonian dynasty. The main takeaway from the similarity is that both codes likely represent the culturally acceptable treatment of servants 
of the time and place. And this isn't the only place in the Old Testament that lays out how an owner is to treat his servants. It's also found in Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 26 and Leviticus chapters 17 to 26. When you combine the laws of Exodus chapters 20 through 23, Deuteronomy and Leviticus together, you get what are known as the Covenant Code, the Deuteronomic Code, and the Holiness Code, respectively. I'll cover what is known about the history of these codes in the next episode. They all address more than slavery and servitude. The part in Exodus 21 is thought to generally apply to servants who are also Hebrews, which is really curious, the people enslaving their own people. The general view is that the slavery practiced by the ancient Israelites wasn't exactly as we view slavery, not that it makes it any better, but it's important to understand the differences. The ancient version, as determined primarily through the rules outlined in Exodus, as well as the other passages, did not permit the total domination of one human being over another. Their concept, at least regarding Hebrew servants, would be closer aligned with what we have come to know as indentured servitude. For example, there are several passages that provide remuneration up to freeing should an owner do physical harm to their servant. The murder of slaves by owners was prohibited in the Covenant Code. The Code calls for the death penalty for beating a free man to death. But beating a slave to death was to be punished only if the slave does not survive for one or two days after the beating. Some claim that this implies the death penalty. Others think the death of a servant would lead to a lesser punishment. The text is unclear. Many modern translations, including the NIV, translates this as the survival for one or two days, meaning a more ambiguous, full and speedy recovery, instead of a lingering death. To note, the New Revised Standard Version takes the opposite approach on a lingering death. The varied interpretation clearly demonstrates the lack of clarity. Also, in the first verse of that Exodus chapter, we find that the servant was to be freed without cost after seven years of service. Sometimes you will see this process of being freed referred to as manumission. When they were set free, the Deuteronomic Code required that Israelite slaves freed in this manner should be given livestock, grain, and wine as a part of the process. In Jewish tradition, the identified items were regarded as symbolic, representing a contribution of produce rather than of money or clothing, with a generally accepted equivalence to 30 shekels. So, they may not have received exactly what was listed in the text, but either actual money or something else of similar value. The 15th chapter of Deuteronomy states that the now former owner should not regret the gift, for slaves were only half as expensive as hired workers. All of this gives us some insight into the ancient economics of Israelite slavery. For example, it's implied that the wages paid to a free servant was double their living expenses. The text also reminds the Israelites of their former bondage in Egypt. Finally, 
at least in regard to the seventh year freeing of Israelite slaves. Nachmanides, a 13th century Jewish-Spanish scholar, wrote that this requirement was a command and not merely advice. And for him to actually write that shows that others felt otherwise and that slavery likely existed then and there, meaning 13th century Spain. There were exceptions to this that were outlined later in the passage. The servant could petition his master not to be freed. Why would they make such a request? Well, the common claim is that the stability of servitude under a family in which the slave was well treated may have been preferable to economic freedom in the responsibilities that went along with it. And remember, they would have likely been starting with nothing except for 30 shekels worth of foodstuffs. To this end, they were commonly seen as members of the household to which they were attached. As for a census, well, there isn't one, so it's essentially impossible to determine how pervasive the practice was. What can be reasonably determined, though, is that the practice changed over time. This is seen in the two other sets of rules concerning servitude and slavery found in the Old Testament. These rules are seen in more depth in the book of Leviticus. The first set of rules concerns servants of Hebrew descent. In many translations, these people are translated as servants, not slaves. It's thought that these people ended up in the societal position they did as a result of either extreme poverty or the failure to repay a debt, maybe a crime. As for those selling themselves into servitude to pay off a debt, the Holiness Code directs that the debtor must not be made to do the work of slaves, but must instead be treated the same as a hired servant. So how does this translate? Well, in Jewish tradition, it's thought that the debtor should not be instructed to do humiliating work, work normally given to slaves. Instead, they should perform the labor which they usually did before they had been enslaved or inservituted. I don't know if that's a word, but just go with it. Thieves, at least the male ones, if caught during the daytime, could be cast into servitude if they couldn't pay for whatever it was they were attempting to steal. Also, parents could sell their children into servitude to settle a debt. The times were surely different. The poverty route would lead the person to essentially sell themselves to a wealthier family. And the debt route, well, that's fairly self-evident. For these servants, it's fairly clear to see why the seven-year rule applies. As a side note, this is commonly believed to be the source of the seven-year rule seen in our modern credit reporting and bankruptcy world. Hebrew slaves would also be released in the Jubilee year. About that Jubilee, essentially, it was a celebration that occurred either every 49 or 50 years. Overall, the celebration served as a debt relief party. It largely deals with the rights to land and other tangible property. Slaves and prisoners would be freed, debts would be forgiven, and the mercies of God would be particularly apparent. And that's it for the twice-centennial celebration, back to servitude and slavery. Despite all of these rules protecting the way they were treated, the Jewish slaves were still treated as property, 
public worship required a quorum, meaning ten men to be present. No matter how many Jewish slaves were present, their presence did not count towards a quorum. So, they were worth less than one, probably less than three-fifths of a person. As for the non-Hebrew slaves, they were typically drawn from prisoners of war following battles on the road to and after the arrival in Canaan. The justification for their servitude typically relied on what is known as the Curse of Ham. More on that non-swine curse in a minute. Researchers are not quite sure how closely the laws concerning humane treatment were actually followed. In the 19th century, they tended towards the conclusion that the Jewish slaves were treated as merely indentured servants, where the Jewish owners treated their servants with compassion. This belief changed in the 20th century, when the Jewish slave ownership practices were examined more closely, and their historical accounts generally conclude that Jews did own slaves, at least through the Maccabean period, which was from about 167 to 160 BC, and that it was probably more widespread and perhaps varied from more humane to more cruel, depending on the owner. Most of the slaves owned, and I really hate using that word, owned, but for now, and considering they were legally property, it is appropriate, but still distasteful. Well, most of the slaves owned by the Israelites were non-Hebrew, so not servants, but what translates to slaves in most Bible translations. And the laws concerning their treatment were much worse. They could be permanently owned and even inherited by the owner's children. But if a runaway slave from a different country did manage to make it to the promised land, they were no longer considered slaves and they would be treated like any other resident alien. These laws existed through the Talmud era, when they underwent an overhaul, which means they were essentially in force in the region when B.C. turned to A.D., so when Christ was alive. Curiously, the Deuteronomic Code instituted the death penalty for the crime of kidnapping men to enslave them. So, how to thread this needle? Well, if you were an enemy combatant, captured on the battlefield, either slavery or execution were in your future. But once the battle ceased and you were returned to your home, you were relatively safe from enslavement, assuming the rules were followed. Overall, in the New Testament, the battles faced by the various Israelite tribes were either defensive, so in their own territory, or a short distance into enemy territory. Keeping this in mind, it's likely that the enslavement of foreign fighters was not a great source of slaves. A couple of other things. Legal code found in Leviticus chapter 25 explicitly allows participation in the slave trade. Also, and somewhat curious, is that resident aliens, so foreign people residing in Israelite territory, were included in this and were even allowed to own Israelite slaves. It was possible to be born into slavery, regardless of if you were Hebrew or foreign. In Exodus, we see that if a male Israelite servant was given a wife by his owner, 
then the wife and any children which had resulted from the union would remain the property of the owner, even when the male is freed after seven years. Now, there is an interpretation of the code that says this only applies if the wife is not Israelite, but Canaanite. Not that that makes it better. Later in their history, likely around 597 BC, when the invading Babylonians were at the city gates, King Zedekiah of Judah freed all the slaves so that they could help in the fight. And when the Babylonians retreated, the slaves turned freemen were re-enslaved. Thanks a lot. Jeremiah, as seen in chapter 34 of the book that bears his name, was appalled. According to Jeremiah, the re-enslavement led to God destroying the kingdom of Judah as punishment. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah before its destruction by Babylon in 586 BC, just like Jeremiah had foretold. The Holiness Code does not mention seventh-year manumission. Instead, it only instructs that debt slaves and Israelite slaves owned by foreign residents should be freed during the Jubilee year. So what does this indicate? It could be merely a refinement or clarification to the earlier code, or represent a wholesale change in the treatment of these servants. We don't really know. On the very bad side of the scale, it could be an instruction that slaves should be allowed to buy their freedom by paying an amount equal to the total wages of a hired servant over the entire period remaining until the next jubilee. And the amount would be completely dependent on how long that period is. Anywhere from mere months to 49 years. On the long end of the scale, I did find an unverified estimate that this could currently be in the neighborhood of one and a half million dollars. Honestly, I would normally attempt to validate this number, but I find it a bit repugnant to try to put a dollar amount on a year of freedom. With that in mind, valuing 49 years of freedom at that amount seems remarkably low. The Ten Commandments make it clear that even servants and slaves were to honor the Sabbath which shouldn't come as a surprise, as it was a commandment, and those applied to everyone. But other rules were not equally applied. The Holiness Code states that during the Jubilee year, slaves and their masters should eat food which the land yields without farming that land, so whatever comes up. But the Code did not explicitly forbid the slaves from farming. It only restricted their owners. So, great year to be an owner, same old, same old for the servant. Finally, about this curse of Ham. It's found in Genesis chapter 9, where it reads, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. End quote. Some scholars believe this is what the ancient Hebrews used as justification for enslaving other people, which shouldn't come as much of a surprise. When slavery was legal in the Western world, the same passage was often cited as biblical justification. Now, there are other researchers that obviously interpret the same text differently. There were also rules governing female slaves. Male owners couldn't marry female slaves. Male slaves couldn't marry Jewish women. After B.C. changed to A.D., a few centuries after, Jewish law required Jewish slave owners to try to convert non-Jewish slaves to Judaism. Other laws required slaves, if not converted, to be circumcised and undergo ritual immersion in a bath. But in the 4th century, the Romans stepped in and prevented the circumcision of non-Jewish slaves. This is thought to have at least reduced the practice. But it still leaves the question, why would there be such a practice? At that time, Jewish slave owners were not permitted to drink wine that had been touched by an uncircumcised person. And if you weren't going to make the wine yourself, you needed to ensure your slaves were ritually clean. But there was something else, and in a bit of an opposite direction. While conversion to Judaism was possible for slaves, religious authorities discouraged it. At the time, Jews were not permitted to proselytize. Also, to convert a slave into Judaism without the owner's permission was viewed as harming the owner. Doing so would prevent the slave from working on the Sabbath, and therefore the owner would lose one-seventh of the labor output. And if you're paying attention, you will remember how this contradicts the millennia earlier practice and commandment of everyone getting the Sabbath off. Also, if the slave converted to Judaism, the owner would be prevented from selling the slave to a non-Jewish owner, value further diminished. Overall, the takeaway is that male Hebrew slaves had six years to serve. Children born to slaves remained slaves. Female slaves were frequently used as concubines, and some slaves, if they did not want to be freed, could be enslaved for life. Non-Hebrew slaves had it much worse. The text, in its position right after the Ten Commandments and the laws of the altar, show that slavery was a huge part of the ancient culture. And that's enough about this despicable practice. Join me next week when I'll discuss the history of the three codes, the Covenant Code, the Deuteronomic Code, and the Holiness Code. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page in that table about the Ten Commandments by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, 
subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.